I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to the behind the scenes episode of Of That Colossal Ray. <laughs> is that what we're going with? The title. <laughs> that is what we're going with, Johnny. Yeah. yeah. That's why we spelled it with so many E's. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, my name is Helen and I am joined today by. Hi, I'm Jonathan Sims, one of the co writers for Of That Colossal Rack. Hi, Katie Seaton, she, her, I'm Sanders and composer. Hi, I'm Maximilian John, the director of Of That Colossal Wreck. And I'm Sasha Sienna, the other writer of That Colossal Wreck. Wonderful. Thanks so much for coming on the show, sharing your time, doing this episode with us. All right, let's dive right in and get started with a fairly general question. What was it like for you all creating a sci-fi horror audio drama? Yeah, pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Sash. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Sasha's totally right. <laughs> Thank you, Max. <laughs> I came into it sort of partway through the writing process. So I already knew what it was going to be. And I had some first drafts uh, sent to me. And I loved it immediately. The atmosphere of it came through instantly. And that's sort of what attracted me to the whole project. Yeah, it was. Do you know what? Oh, I don't want to jump the gun on other questions. But no, go for it. It was an easier process than I expected. <gasps> yeah, because I got to work with people who were so good at what they did that I could more or less just forget about all of that, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> there was no need to go too deep on, say, the characters or the sound design because I knew that was all going to be taken care of. Mm. So I had the easiest job in the world, right? <laughs> I got to receive the scripts. They were great. Send them on to the actors. All the actors did their job. They were fantastic. I pretty much just sat there, if I'm honest. (laughs) And then asked to give sound design direction. But Katie's fantastic. So I had like a few ideas at the beginning. And then I have, again, just sat there and listened to all the edits coming back in. So, yeah, it, it... Best and easiest job of my life. (laughs) Oh, that's nice. That's glowing praise. Katie, how was it for you? This is my first time doing sci-fi, actually, so I haven't got a lot to compare it to, but it's been really fun. For me, although the horror part is definitely a big identifier, 
I tend to always come at things from a psychological stroke emotional angle. Mm. So I think all the exploring the themes about, you know, what is it to be a human or the existential stuff was more at the top of my focus in terms of my approach than the horror per se. And then every now and then I'd come to a gruesome bit and go, oh, yeah, OK, now I get <laughs> to make hideous noises as well. <laughs> <laughs> the nice thing about sci-fi sound design and music is that because you're creating a lot from scratch, you get this blank canvas from which you get to start to draw out the atmosphere and the characters in the very sonic qualities that you're creating in the space that you're putting people in. And a certain amount of it can just come from your imagination. And so you can allow that to reflect the mood and the themes from get-go and then draw on that for music as well, which is what I love to do. And it's a very organic process. So I enjoyed that. And the scripts also were very rich in interesting detail about what this place looked like and what it might feel like to be there. So that was quite easy. To, you know, I had a good blueprint as well. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of work. It's been intensive, but at no point have I felt sort of... <sighs> like I'm working in a vacuum or like I didn't know what to do next. So yeah, it's been positive too. Lovely. While we're on that topic, so I've only listened to the first two episodes, but we're going to spoil the whole thing. That's <laughs> totally fine. There's a lot of percussion in like the transitional bits of music between scenes. Like there's like sort of a bing, bing, bong and a <laughs> and like a, a, a thud, thud, thud kind of noise. It's, yeah. it's just an interesting and like weird tinkling sounds. And I was wondering whether that was a deliberate choice that you made. Can I... S Max, please do chime in. No, go for it. I remember this. This is the first conversation I had with Elizabeth Moffat about it. Oh. When we were first talking about the show. And she wanted to know what my thoughts were about what we should do with the sound design. And I had one idea. <laughs> <laughs> I had this one idea that what I wanted was the mechanics of the space station or the clunky bits to go through into the music for mm. the sound effects ah. of the music to kind of blend together. Yeah. And I thought for all the world, she's not going to go for it. So I, I pitched it high thinking she'll she'll talk me back. She'll talk me back <laughs> to something more reasonable, something that's less work for a sound designer. And she just said, yeah, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah you don't know Liz. Yeah, Liz, <laughs> Liz will always rise to a challenge. Yeah. Also, that's literally my jam. I mean, she knew, she knew I was on it too. I think that's why, yeah, because she knew that Katie was going to come in and nail it. And I thought I was asking for something ridiculously ambitious, which I, I think it is, I think, Katie, for anybody else that is really ambitious. But yeah, that was the single idea I had and it turns out everyone was already on that page already. That's great. Yeah, I really like sort of, I said this in another place, if any of those people are listening, they're going to know that I'm copying myself here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I really like the space in between sound and music and at what level the consciousness sits in between the two and what you can do with that in terms of sort of, somebody said, triangulating where the narrative is drawing you to. Mm. It always seems to me like when the music rises out the sound, it's like one of those ghosts that comes out of the ground and sort mm. of manifests, you know, <laughs> from people's feelings. Yeah. Which is something that works so well in sci-fi as well, which is already about that overlap between character psychology and sort of, you know, technology. And I think it really works for the for the genre as well. Mm. Yeah, I think um, with sci-fi horror particularly, because this is a very conceptual sci-fi as well. It's very existential. And I think the word you're looking for is pretentious. <laughs> <laughs> Intellectual. <laughs> yeah, because it's a very conceptual sci-fi in its idea, I think for both myself and Johnny, we think that sci-fi is best when it feels grounded. 
And also because this was a horror, it really does need to feel visceral and it needs to feel physical. Mm. And I think that a danger with sci-fi, particularly sci-fi set in a space station, in the kind of oblivion of space, it can feel weightless. It can feel like you're in that weightless, well, space. And it was really important that this particular show didn't feel like that, which is why it was so great, I think, to work with Rusty Quill and the people that we've got on the team. Because one thing that I think you always get from a Rusty Quill show is incredibly physical sound design. And it has meant that the space station feels incredibly atmospheric and incredibly real and visceral which is just really important for this kind of sci-fi show. Yeah, It's a bit of a cliche, but it's like, oh yeah, the space station is really the seventh character. <laughs> <laughs> Someone had to say it. <laughs> yeah, there was a very particular sound to all the horrible slime that they kept finding. <laughs> ah, slime. Well, on that point, if the space station is the seventh character, the Whistlers are the eighth, right? Oh, mm. all right then. And Katie's work with the Whistlers was amazing. Mm, yeah. But they are character numbers. Eight to seven thousand, really, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's really interesting what you say about sci-fi, though. I always thought of it up until now as being a way of looking at what people are like by putting a different filter on them. Oh, I think it is that as well. Yeah, it's just because now I think of it almost in a more sort of first-person way than I had been before. If that makes sense. So a little bit more kind of up close and looking at the the grains of the personality. And it's also interesting what you say about the organic sounds. So just come back to sound for a sec because the space station. I really wanted not to create with a synth. So clearly, like I was sort of somehow telepathically absorbing mm-hmm. <laughs> your energy there. So I, I did actually create it all with organic sound that I recorded, like flexing perspex, and I've got a big lino roll. You know, like the enormous bog rolls yeah. that you wrap carpet round. Oh yeah, yeah. One of them, like it's huge. And I was sort of breathing down it to find the resonant frequency, which I then sang Ooh. and recorded that. And that made a surprisingly awesome noise. So that became that sort of thrumming that you hear Mm -hmm. quite a lot the way through. Wow. That's amazing. I never thought I'd say it, but it wasn't the right time for a synth. (laughs) (laughs) There are electronic elements, just so that we don't sound completely like I'm flexing perspect. But it's yeah, I wanted to be grounded in organic sound. So yeah, there you go, visceral. Speaking of viscera, the Whistlers. <laughs> Tell me more about them. Tell me about the sort of monster design in like audio only formats. Like how did that go? Like where did the idea for the Whistlers come from as well? Well, I think when we were writing the scripts, Johnny and I very much wanted to create something that was A, very, very alien and B, very much not a person Mm. because we only have seven episodes and i know that given a chance both johnny and i will absolutely complicate a situation and humanize our (laughs) villains we really wanted to make sure that we didn't have a chance to do that so the two things we wanted to do were make them terrifying predatory and animalistic and be alien so that it was very clear that these were monsters and Honestly, we hadn't thought that much about the specifics of the sound until we were in our first meeting with Max. And then Max and Elizabeth were like, so what do they sound like? And I think we both came up with exactly the same thing off the cuff. Yeah, so I think we were both drawing very much from... I I think the sort of, you know, the xenomorph in Alien is obviously the easy Mm. pull for this sort of sci-fi horror but it is also to hand for a reason because it is such an effective creature in terms of this is not 
something that you recognize i mean now it obviously mm. is but <laughs> it is one that works primarily in the visual medium the monsters in attack the block are also really good in this way that they are so visual with like the way that their mouths work so trying to think of that in terms of audio and be like okay so here's here's how you make something look alien how do you make something sound alien and so, like, whistles and clicks and the sound of their movement was was very important to us. And, like, I'll be honest, it was one of those writing bits where you very much write it down and then cast it towards the director and sound designer and uh, be like, <laughs> mm-hmm. good luck. <laughs> we did have the idea that we wanted to identify every time they whistled in the script, right, what were they actually communicating I remember us talking about that, Katie, mm-hmm. trying to work out for for every instance what is being said and can we make the whistles sort of a form of communication with the listener mm. as well. Yes, I remember saying that. And at the time go, yeah, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> I think I need to do it. And every time there was a new whistle, I was like, oh, crap. Oh, yeah. this time. And going back to what um, I think Sasha was saying, it's really funny to me that even though you went to such lengths to have an unambiguous enemy... <laughs> You still had Luna go off to try and make friends with them. I was going to say, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, it was very important to us that they were inhuman, but not unintelligent. Mm. It's the old Star Trek, you know, it's life, but not as we know it, but Mm. in a horror context rather than a, like, exploration sort of context. I think as well, because so many really great sci-fi works that I love, like, a real theme of it is encountering these other forms of life and how they deal with that, to me is either assuming that those forms of life are a threat or lesser, or they are actually exploring whether there is a common link here. And my favourites tend to be the ones that explore whether there's a common link there. And we wanted very much to kind of not shut that down, (laughs) but we don't have time to tell that story and the story that we're actually telling. So we wanted to make it clear that this was not a kind of life form where you're going to be able to find common ground. But we also didn't want to create our characters such that they would just immediately go to fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we wanted it to be clear that like the whistlers see humans not as people in the same way. Like that there is there is this sort of two way. Like the whistlers can't really comprehend humans as anything other than like food, essentially, or like animals in the same way that our characters can't easily comprehend the whistlers as anything other than this this threat. Yeah, you talk about sort of shutting down that interpretation or or that avenue, Sasha, but I feel like you guys did such a good job of keeping everything in play at the same time. As soon as, you know, we're able to, I guess, project an element of society onto the aliens, it becomes impossible not to humanize them to a certain extent, Mm. to think of them as being people. And then when you do that to Luna, their potential friends, right? And to Mira, they are potentially enemy combatants and they're both making the same fundamental mistake and the the real situation is something in between is that that to even think of them as human is wrong but it's i like that for them it is unavoidable because empathy is kind of at the core of people and especially these characters who have so few other people to empathize with that they're kind of projecting just for the sake of having more Mm -hmm. community around them even if it is 
uh, antagonistic. Loneliness. Absolutely. Uh, so I don't know. I think you guys did such a good job of keeping everything on the table. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you all for that. Since we've started talking a bit about the characters and their reaction to the whistlers, do any of you have a favourite character or one that you relate to more than the others? I mean, I really enjoyed writing Anya because I love an angry, messed up sort of veteran character mm. who's gone a bit weird. Yeah, eccentric and poignant is a wonderful combination. <laughs> <laughs> I found myself not so much, it's not so much that I'd like relate to specific characters as that I would really like the like the dichotomy between two characters. I like the contrast between Mira and Levi. And in a way, they're both, kind of the leaders or intended to be leaders but in such different ways and then as I was writing it as well I found that I really liked the kind of the dichotomy between or the juxtaposition between Mira and Luna Mm. I thought that those two really played well together in that they're very very different people but I think that they have quite a similar core and that they're going in the same direction yeah Levi and Mira are such parent characters threatening to turn the car around at any point you know and they i think because of of that fact and because they both have such clear sort of ideological standpoints that are really based in their emotional core for that reason i really empathize with zach just stuck in the middle of it all oh yeah i do love zach actually just trying to get people to stop fighting just just Everyone calm down and try to have a, a normal conversation. Yeah, and Ewan is so good at it. Yeah. Absolutely mm. nails it. Yeah, man. He's fantastic. My favourite bit was when he was getting really irritated with Mira. <laughs> I just, I felt it. <laughs> I was there with him. <laughs> yeah. Definitely big shout out to all the actors. I mean, all the characters are so warm in their own ways. Even Mira's spikiness clearly comes from expecting to be in a position where everything is under control Mm. and nothing is under control and she's internally panicking but trying desperately not to look like she's panicking and it all makes everything much worse yeah there's so much vulnerability on show with all of them i think we do tend to write quite warm characters in a lot of ways i think i think both of us struggle to not see the best in the characters we're writing a lot of the time yeah i think that's true i think that we like to see our characters as people like full people and so i think that we tend to write with an eye to both where their warmth and humanity are but also where their vulnerabilities are so i think i think all the characters are warm but i think they're also all very vulnerable in their own way yeah and that's always the hook for the actors right seeing the lines on the page and thinking well in what way does this come from a deep insecurity? Because it always does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with all the best writing. And once they get their teeth into that, everything just flows. And I think you can you can really hear that in their performances together. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Like what makes often what makes a character engaging is their vulnerabilities or their flaws. If done well, a character that refuses to have flaws is also very interesting as well. Yeah, because that is such a flaw. That's a refusal (laughs) to be human. So it sounds like you all had like a really positive and fairly easy experience. But I would like to know, was there anything that you found challenging about making the show? Anything that was like difficult to imagine or to create? I actually found the short length really challenging. I think that it was a very ambitious project and I don't think that either Johnny or I had ever written something that had to be quite this tight before. Mm. So by the time we actually had to put the scripts in, I I could not stop fussing with them. I could not <laughs> stop fiddling with them. And by the time we had to put them in, 
I was like, I oh, I just, I think we've dropped a couple plates. Like Max was saying, like, you know, the, we were trying to get the balance right. And I was, I think that we could have shifted the balance a little more. And I, I don't normally listen to stuff that I've written because I hate doing so. But um, <laughs> I, I did listen to these two episodes uh, that are already out while we're recording this for, so that we could record this. And I'm so glad that I did actually, because I think that the finished product is, is really, really good. I think that everybody mm. has done an incredible job of, of putting it together. And um, yeah, I think it was tricky, but it was it was a fulfilling challenge. And also, I think I learned a lot from the limitations. Mm. For me, I think my challenge was trying to keep it grounded, because it's such a conceptual work in a lot of ways. You know, this is our sort of 60s sci-fi writer short story you use a quote from a classical poet as the title <laughs> and so like the the very first drafts i think had a lot of quite arch quite sort of sweeping stuff so like raining that down and turning it into a like something grounded in the characters i think was something that took a little bit of work mm. i mean for me it's maybe not a great answer but you know when you're when you're directing anything like this, you're always trying to anticipate the problems that are going to be coming up so you can head them off. The recording sessions were so smooth and they went so fast, I became deeply, <laughs> deeply paranoid that we were missing something, you know? April can testify to that. I was, like, pulling her aside and like, is this okay? Like, is this actually okay? Because I was sure, like, we must be missing something. You know when everything goes right and you're like, yeah, this is an ambush. I've been mm. here before. Life has <laughs> taken me like this before. But yeah, we were just we were just rattling through it. The actors were clicking so neatly and fast that, that I thought we're going to get to the end and realize there's been an awful mistake. We've missed out half of a script somewhere. Something has not gone right. Um, so I think if there was any challenging bit, it was my uh, yeah my refusal to actually you know, receive good news and to uh, just be a little bit more laid back. I think a lot of us can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Katie? I'm going to say the challenge is technical for me. Uh, my first instinct was to say, I need a new computer. Which <laughs> 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 is probably the biggest challenge I've been facing. But I don't think there was any point where artistically I thought, I don't know what I'm supposed to do here. That wasn't a thing. But there were a few times when, you know, there's been some mixing challenges. The constant whistler noise sometimes when it's present just gobbles up an awful lot of the attention of the ears. I've spent quite a lot of time just fiddling around trying to make that work, like make, making them sound sufficiently present to be a threat, but not so present that it obliterates everything else or gives everybody tinnitus. So that, that's been a thing. And yeah, that's probably the main thing, actually, has been the mixing challenges. It's been quite hard work. I do love the way you talk about audio, Katie, like the idea of, um, <laughs> of what, what, what I've literally forgotten exactly what words you use, but the idea of the whistlers being too present mm. in an audio mix. Love that. Yeah, I mean, you only have so much ear. Right. <laughs> mm. It's true. Yeah. The ear is a finite resource. It's quite a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a sort of a vessel that you can fill. And when you have filled the ear vessel, <laughs> you need to take something out of it before you can put something else into it. <laughs> so we've talked about the challenges and what you found difficult. Do any of you have a favourite part of sort of the final product the episodes that are now out yeah i think because it was a really short series the limitations mean that it's really tight mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, like i think genuinely i think that the thing that i found the most challenging is probably actually my favorite thing 
about listening listening to it. Mm. But also, I think that, Max, what you were saying with the characters all being really warm, I mm. think that the actors and the performances all have such a warm quality to them. Yeah. And there's also the space station is so atmospheric in the way that it sounds. It feels so present and so big and so close and so real. It's It's really lovely, really wonderful. I like how the monsters sound. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the movement of them was quite complex. I cracked my knuckles a lot in front of microphones. Layered, like there were, I think there were about twenty layers. Because I, I, I looked at sort of the gait of a horse. Because she said it was a four-legged creature, so like how four-legged creatures walk. And I tried to make them kind of crackle up and down with each leg movement. Mm. I mean, I had to simplify it a bit because that was a bit convoluted. <laughs> but I was doing lots of things with details, like I was getting um, teasels and like pinging the spiky bits to try and get that kind of little, those little sort of the, the pokes in the ear, you know, that the sit on top and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of texture in that. Mm. Uh, so it was fun. It was fun to do. And the whistles themselves were me singing, actually. No way. Yeah, yeah. I thought they sounded very musical, you know, very like, well, harmonic, I suppose, because they're they're harmonising, but yeah, they're really good. Yeah, again, that was quite a hard balance because they needed to be musical enough that there was a sense that there was some language happening between Mm. them and they needed to sort of have that quality that it is actually an animal. It's not an electronic sound. But they need to be weird enough as well to be mm. alien. So yeah. I found that I sung a really, really high note and pulled it into a, a digital synth called Omnisphere where you can do loads of, I'm trying to think of the technical word, fucking <laughs> stuff up. <laughs> it's not coming to me. Modulation, that's it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I kind of layered various instances of it on top of each other and like detuned them slightly. This particular program has got a thing it does called inner space i think where you can take different sounds and you sort of combine them with your original sound to make something completely different so there was one called like i think it was like hyper wiggle hairbrush or something i don't know but you know i, I fucked with that for ages <laughs> uh, yeah that was how i did it so always a tightrope walking between sort of it feeling like it's coming from a creature not a mm. computer um but it feeling weird enough as well scary enough that's incredible I'm so impressed. (laughs) I think for me, having an overview of this whole thing, and because I'm just an old softy in the end, (laughs) what I really love about the final episodes is being able to hear all the work that each individual person has put in to this, Mm. being able to hear all the sound design. And every actor, you know, I had a conversation with them beforehand about their character, about what they thought and trying to, you know, develop their approach to it. And then... With the actors, we had a a big group chat before we even started. And they put all of them so much thought into each of their characters. They turned up with ideas, lots and lots of ideas about their backstory and and who these people were, you know, what they were hiding either from each other or themselves. It was incredible. And I think being able to listen to the episodes and hear all of that represented in the final product really makes me very proud. That's the best part of all of this, always, is uh, getting to work with lots and lots of talented people. Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? Because I think in particular with audio drama, like it is truly collaborative. Mm. Like there are sort of pillars, you know, the the writing, the acting and the post-production artist work. 
um, any one of which not there, it would, it would fall down. You know, it is. It, yeah. There's. It cannot be done in isolation. Any bit of it. But that's that's what makes it rich and stuff. And from the writing point of view, it's always so rewarding to see what you've just sort of put on a page just coming to life. Mm. Yeah, it's one of my favourite things about writing scripts is that it's a collaborative form of writing. Yeah, basically, I just get to do all the bits that I like, and then go, all right, everybody, just sort this out, make it good. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> sort this out and make it yeah. good <laughs> no but it's it's genuinely it it feels so special to have everybody contributing and i think it it really does make the finished product more than the sum of its parts yeah oh you're all so wholesome <laughs> oh i've missed this yeah. can i say my favorite bit oh yes i didn't realize no, you I just went off on a long ramble about whiskers didn't i instead <laughs> <laughs> i like the cold unconcern of the space station and how it's listening to them all the time mm. i like how it opens with that yes and then you know the spell is broken and it's kind of watching and listening and it kind of doesn't give a shit as far as i can tell that motif comes back again and again my favorite time is at the opening of episode six when we hear the end of episode five but from within the bridge I have to say I, I extended the flashback back a little bit because I wanted a little bit more of that. Mm. I really wanted to just be sitting there, mm. you know, just really indifferent to the whole thing and hear the, the drama approaching, but hear the bridge first, especially after the um, fossilised recording that we hear before that as well. So that's my favourite bit. But then it ends, the whole series ends with that motif as well. And it's the last thing we hear too. And you get sort of the impression that people may come and go and the space station doesn't give a shit. And there's, I don't know, there's something about that which I just I just really enjoy. And I also like how it emerges out of like, I wrote the music to sound a little bit like a cradle or possibly a pendulum of death. <laughs> and almost like, they, you know, these are babies coming out of their cots. <laughs> you know, to make it even more vulnerable sounding. Yeah. I think it is so important in sci-fi especially to get that sense of... That sense of coldness from the universe, that sense of like, and because mm. the space station is the universe from the point of view of this series, mm. like, I think you did a fantastic job. Mm. <laughs> what did you call it? Pendulum yeah, of death? Yeah, my pendulum of death. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Helen, you know, the pendulum of death. <laughs> my, my pendulum of death. This, this is where you think, I've been absorbed in this intensely for six or seven weeks and... Nobody else knows my little shorthand, do they? And I've forgotten this. <laughs> no, I love it. Yeah, it's in the theme. There's a kind of modulated piano, which sort of has the sort of backwards and forwards tick almost, which is the same tune as the, as the Whistler's tune. Mm. But I deliberately put it at 60 beats per minute. So it was actually like a second hand, like counting the seconds to the death of time or whatever. Because um, I, I wanted to have that sort of that kind of shining, but also cold feeling. So that's my pendulum of death. Katie, you're so clever. I thank you. Um, I get. Yes. I, I get. I get. Yes. I, Accept I, the compliment. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I was going with overthinker. I think. <laughs> All right, we're coming up to the end of the episode, so I've got one quick, fun question to end on, and that question is: Would you leave or stay on the Ozymandias? Mm. I mean. I'm a bit of a homebody, so I'm, I'm probably I'm probably hanging around. I'm not I'm not launching myself out into the great unknown. No, thank you. <laughs> I like to think I would leave, but I I really don't think that I would. I think mm. that the the lure of kind of creating a home with people that I love would be too much. But I really like to think that I would go. Yeah, I would stay as well. 
Oh no! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh, this is terrible. There's not one We're adventure all between us. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think as I don't know, we're all like creatives, right? I'm, I was there thinking. As long as there's a piano, I'll probably be <laughs> Right? <laughs> to be fair, you're asking for people who like, are all working from home. Right. and like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If we've got a computer, it's fine. <laughs> we basically <laughs> live in a handful of rooms anyway. I think if everybody else left, I probably would go, though. I'm not that much of an introvert. Yeah, I think I'm the same. I think... I would want to be with the people I know and my friends. Mm. So I'd just be like, wherever you go, I'll just tag along. We'll make it work. I think there's the bit where they come to the garden and there's the graves of the people who've been before. Mm. And I actually think that that's a really beautiful little story that they've had. Mm. Yeah. The people that we never see, Mm. where they, they have made a life for themselves. They've made a little community and it didn't last, but it was beautiful while it was there. And that's probably what I would hope Mm. for. Well, on that note, <laughs> thank you all of you for talking about the process of making this series. And thank you for like sharing your thoughts and being so insightful as always. Before we finish, is there anything you would like to plug that people should know about? So if you're interested in more writing from myself and Sasha, we do tabletop role-playing games as MacGuffin and Company. So if you go to mcguffinandcompany.com, you can find some of our work there. And personally, my stuff, you can find it at jonathan-sims.com. You can find my stuff at sashasienna.com. I'll, I'll plug again MacGuffin and Company because I've been told that I'm allowed. So check out MacGuffin and Company at mcguffinandcompany.com. <laughs> um, am I allowed to plug... Like stuff I'm doing with other podcasts. I won't. It's enough. That's enough. You can find me at <laughs> sashasienna.com. And like Johnny said, you can find MacGuffin and Company at MacGuffinandCompany.com. How about you, Max? I have nothing to plug and I <laughs> cannot be found. But oh, that's the dream. <laughs> you know what? I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of the Neon Inkwell shows. And I think listeners should also watch out for those because I don't know much about them, but I'm sure they're going to be great. <laughs> Katie, how about you? Oh, I'm sound designing, composing in audio drama all over the place these days. So, I don't know, Google me or something. Um, I'm going <laughs> <laughs> to try and get back onto social media a bit, actually, because I am actually doing my own project with some of my homies, which will probably, I should plug it here because April actually was the one who gave us the name about three years ago. But it's really, really hard to say. So I'm going to try and say it right first time. The Infinite Instrumentalist will be the name that it goes out on um, when we finally start um, building the website and getting out there. So you can look out for that, I guess. I have such respect for those plugs. I have nothing to plug and I cannot be found. And I don't know, Google me. I feel like a real chump now. (laughs) So... Thank you all for listening. Next up on the Neon Inkwell feed, you can find Inexplicables from Tom Critch and Alexander J. Newell. You may have heard of him. Directed by Maddie Searle and lead script edited by me. Very excited for that Mm -hmm. to be heard uh, by all of you. And then after that, we have The Pit Below Paradise coming in March from J. Evelyn Gaskell and directed by How It Ends duo Micah Rodriguez and Stephanie Resendez. And we'll catch you later.
Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.